Time and again, the world bears witness to truths seldom said. Lend an ear. We promise enlightened, informed conversation. My name is Robert, and this is Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. Welcome back. This is Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. A very special returned guest today, Ms. Michael Learned, an actress, an activist, a writer, and an artistic presence. Thank you, Michael, for gracing our program. What a lovely introduction. Thank you for having me. Our pleasure, I can assure you. I wonder if we could start with a little bit of a discussion as to the activity since our last conversation. What have you been about? Oh, my goodness. Um, I've been doing mostly theater. I did a little short film, which I'm sure you'll ask me about. Um, I've done Driving Miss Daisy several times, which is a classic that I never grow tired of. Um, I've done on Go- I toured on Golden Pond with Tom Bosley, and I'm going to be doing that again this uh, next year in June. Um, so I'm busy. I'm pretty busy all the time. Right now, I'm out of work. I'm looking for. I'm sitting around looking for a job. That seems to be part and parcel of the dilemma of anyone in the creative arts, especially now. If you had to share that experience with someone younger listening to this and fears being out of work, how do you approach it? Well, I'm not afraid of it anymore because um, that's the way it is in this business. Um, You're going to have your times when you have to some people are throwing everything at you and other times when it's like you never existed and you have to get used to that pretty quickly. But, uh, you know, my husband is out of work too. A lot of people, he's a lawyer. You know, a lot of people are out of work right now because of the COVID. It's just mind boggling how the world is still turning with, with such a, you know, horrendous virus that's out there waiting to get everybody. Would you say, Michael, that this is the most unusual moment in your life that you've ever experienced? I would say it is for mine. How do you feel? I feel exactly the same. Um, mm. It's um, mind-boggling. I'm, I'm in California. I look out the window. The sun is shining. Palm trees are swaying. And I think to myself, there's something out there waiting to get me. And, um, and I can't see it. Um, can't run away from it. All I can do is wear my mask and wash my hands. It would seem there is a screenplay in all of this. Have you ever thought about sitting in a corner, pen in hand, and putting dialogue to paper? I have, and I've written a screenplay, um, but I've never, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a sort of first draft person, um, I'm not so good at going back and correcting my own work. I'm very good at editing other people's work. (laughs) I'm not so good at editing my own. And um, I just was revisiting a children's story that I I started to write. I have about 12 pages, probably more actually, because it's all single spaced. And I I, want to get back to that. it's, It's a story for maybe 12, you know, 10 to 13-year-olds. Would you like to play a role that is a role as part of a children's play? Well, everybody wants to be a witch at some point or another. (laughs) So You're going to find that very difficult. Play a witch than be one in my own life, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Your, Your life focus lately seems really multifaceted. I happen to see, and this isn't something that uh, I was intending to deal with until the end of the interview, but I happen to see an old short of yours called The Killer, 2007. These short films, Second Acts Now, they seem incredibly intense. They seem to be something socially aware without the filler. 
So it's not going to be 30 minutes. It's not going to be an hour and a half. But there's a lot in those 16 some odd minutes. I'm curious what directed you to that style of filmmaking. Well, I like the... I like the script and I like, I like the fact that we could do a, a movie in three days. You know, uh, it's, it's a short movie, so three days and that was it. We, television is long days, long hours, and sometimes it seems like it's never going to end when you're in a successful show. Um, so these short films are delightful because you tell a, a story and you tell it, it's compact, and you tell it in a short time. I remember a commercial um, director telling me that's what commercials are. He said, commercials are short, short movies that are a minute long. And I thought, yeah, I never thought of, thought of commercials that way, but in a sense, they are. Someone recently mentioned to me that rap music is that way, he felt as a rap musician that that's why rap music lends itself so easily to advertisements. Perfunctory sounds, one word, two words, fast, image, and then away. It is intriguing. It does make a lot of sense. And we are living in a, an age where everything is fast. Um, faster than I like it. You know, I was thinking the other day, um, you know, back in the ancient Greek times when they built stone slabs, actually sort of in the shape of the chaise lounge. And, um, you know, and they were there just for people to lie on and think, to look at the sky and think. And right. um, people think nowadays, but not not that sort of languorous, feeling of just being open to whatever comes into your mind and passes through it. There's something incredibly pleasurable about that. I know that uh, I recently had audience with His Holiness the Dalai Lama, and his approach to life was very much that way. Just let it be. Don't focus on life. Let life focus on you. That's very hard given the way we live today, we live nine to five constantly. Well, I doubt that the Dalai Lama does his own grocery shopping (laughs) or makes his own bed or runs around trying to pick, uh, you know, pick up kids from school. Um, Probably pretty much everything is done for him. And he has the time to, meditate and to let profound images cross through his, his, his being, if you will. And I'm not putting him down, but, but it is true. We have frantic lifestyles, most of us. This is and, very true. Uh, and I doubt that he does, although he does do a lot of traveling. Um, there is a part of the killer for... 10 minutes, you are Olivia Walton. And I just happened on it by accident after viewing Second Acts. You're Olivia Walton, and you're this gentle matriarch. And then you're sitting at a dinner table looking at someone you intend to do harm to, and your eyes for a split second changed. And it was something that made me very alert to what was going to happen. I'm curious, when you play a role, we're talking about a meditative kind of quality, are you able to step away from self and become that role? Well, hopefully, that's what you hope for. It doesn't always happen because that little ego is always in there sort of saying, pay attention to me, or, you know, how am I doing? How am I doing? Um, but when you can really transcend that and be so totally into your character, it, it's, uh, you transcend everything. You transcend the audience, you transcend your ego, and you're right there in that moment, whatever that moment may be. And, and it's, it's, it's great, but of course, it's like anything. You have to 
you have to come back into yourself and then that old voice you're terrible <laughs> you've lost it <laughs> that old voice comes back the voice of the critic I say but you know I I think to be an actor is is one of the loveliest jobs anyone could ever ask for. Maybe a painter would be wonderful too. I'd love to paint. I think that must be very meditative. There's something about acting though that is <laughs> in its own way visual poetry, using the body, the voice, the eyes, the hands, and painting a picture it's transient. It doesn't last for more than a second, but it leaves the audience thinking. Do you have that feeling of stepping away when you do Driving Miss Daisy? Yes. Uh, that character has become so close to my soul um, that I, I really can get, I totally, I just step into that world. And... Um, it's it's easy for me now. Um, I find nuances, new things each time I do it. And of course, very often I'll be doing it with a different hoke or a different ghoulie. So that's an adjustment. Uh, I never get tired of that play. Never, ever, ever. And I always look forward to doing it wherever I'm doing it. Um, it's it's beautiful. And my grand it's, my grandmother had a relationship like that with her her chauffeur, um, Ambrose. And um, what I learned later after she died, uh, Ambrose, I asked Ambrose point blank one day, I said, were you two lovers? And he said, yes. So I hadn't known that about them because he always wore his chauffeur's cap and his uniform driving mm -hmm. the car. My grandmother always sat in the back. And I, but I, I knew that he knew all the family secrets. He knew where all the skeletons were hiding. He, he, she, he was her confidant, and I knew that, but I didn't realize that they had been in the uh, Jessica Tandy role. Do you play her as a lover who is loved, or simply an older woman with a friend sitting in the back seat of her limousine? I don't play her as a lover um, at all. I don't play her flirtatiously at all. Um, but you see this friendship develop between the two of them in the course of the play. And I don't give it away too early because um, she's really quite bitchy. <laughs> and um, <laughs> and it, she's just inconsiderate, which is what my grandmother was. My grandmother was like a snowplow. She just plowed through everything. Quite brilliant, brilliant mind, um, very well read. She was the president of the Penn Women's Association in the United States and had a, always had a cigarette hanging out of her mouth. <laughs> she was an, quite a character. And so I feel like I'm really portraying their relationship whenever I'm doing Driving Miss Daisy. I had the feeling more so with Second Acts. Took a walk after watching it. I watched it twice. I was struck by the fact that we've missed so much by falling victim to a lack of understanding of diversity, racism, if you will. Do you have that feeling in playing Miss Daisy that there are opportunities lost? that you're trying to catch up with? Oh, you know, I've never thought of that, to tell you the truth. But now that you say that, of course, it is sad that they, they were friends through life, but they could never be more than that, really, in that time frame, uh, in that time period. I think nowadays... It's probably still a bit difficult, depending on where you live, <laughs> but, um, mm -hmm. but it's better. It's not resolved yet. I mean, I can't wait till we get to the point where we can celebrate our differences rather than trying to make everyone the same. 
about celebrating our differences, which the French do, you know, vive la différence. Yes. But it's, it's, it's race. I don't understand racism. I never did. I never understood it as a child. And I still don't understand it as an adult, sort of adult. I think if we understand it, it will have afflicted and affected us. Perhaps it's best we don't. Yeah. It's an aberration, an illness. Well, I've never had to go through what so many of our African-American friends have had to experience. The only time it ever happened to me was in Stratford, Ontario, on a small degree, because they, they, we wanted to rent a house for the summer because my, my then-husband was acting at the Shakespeare Festival. And they wouldn't rent to us because because um, we were actors, and um, and I remember being affronted because I was the cleanest person. I always left a place cleaner than I found it, and mm. uh, and I thought it was just so unfair that just because we were actors, not and and in fairness to the people who didn't want to rent to us. A lot of the actors at Stratford those summers would throw furniture out of the windows and have parties and wreck a house, you know, but I wasn't one of them. When you played Lee in Second Acts, there is a passage where you look at young people together at another table and you regret not being young then. Were you speaking from the heart? I suppose, uh, yeah. Um, you know, everybody, I, I, I think most people my age would like to be who they are today. I'd like to be who I am today in a younger body and in this time. I think this is a time of great upheaval and change and shifting and I think some of the protesting is marvelous, when, but not the rioting and thuggery that's going on under the, in the name, in the guise of protesting. Um, my, daughter, my granddaughter and I protested the city hall here on the first day of the protests. I was protesting brutality, not necessarily police brutality, even just brutality in general. Michael, if you would, if you would hold that thought, I'd love to compare notes with you on the air as to how we approached protest. Okay. We're about to have our first break. Okay. This is Seldom Said. My name is Robert. Special guest, Michael Learned. Back in a moment. This is Seldom Said with Robert Amato. Welcome back. The program is Seldom Said. Special guest, Michael Learned. We're talking about uh, this marvelous actor's career, background, and approach to life in general. I would be curious as to your politicization. You were surrounded on the Waltons by people like Ralph Waite, Will Gear, who was uh, to some degree, along with Burl Ives, a childhood idol of mine. What effect did they have on your awareness as a young woman, as to how you would approach the injustices in life, as to what your responsibility might be as a human being? Well, I have never been uh, political in any way. Um, Ralph was. I, I call myself a bleeding heart liberal, but I'm, I'm sort of now, I'm a more conservative bleeding heart liberal. Um, what is it? Um, I think Churchill said... Um, um, if you have, uh, when you're young, uh, what is it? If you, if you're not a liberal, when you're young, you haven't got a heart. And if you're uh, something right. not a conservative, when you're older, you haven't got a brain, something like that. And, um, you know, I, I feel so that sorry. I'm more, um, I'm less mindlessly full of heart. I, I'm more conservative, but I'm I'm still very much a liberal. And uh, Ralph was very um, he he 
would go on marches for the grape pickers and this and that. I didn't do any of that. I had, I had five kids at home and, uh, you know, doing a series is takes every ounce of energy that you've got. And, um, but he, you know, he wouldn't lend money to our housekeeper. We had the same housekeeper and he wouldn't lend her $40. And I'm thinking I'd rather lend my housekeeper $40, give her $40 if she needs it, then go march at the head of a, parade for the grape pickers not to put ralph down because he was a good kind man but um you know sometimes um you should put your money where your mouth is that's interesting i've heard that a number of times there's a great quotation most people have their heart on the left and their purse on the right (laughs) and perhaps there's an there's an element of truth i never heard that that's a good one your perception of Will? Um, Will was one of the last great hippies. Um, <laughs> he really was. And, uh, um, and right at the end, he lived in Topanga Canyon. He started a compound there, really, and then built this incredible outdoor theater. It's really wonderful, called Theatricum Botanicum, which Ellen Gare, his daughter, runs. And... Um, it, it's uh, it's quite a, a legacy that he's left for for people who enjoy the classics. Um, they mostly do classics, and it's always outdoors, and it's always good. Uh, Ellen is a wonderful artistic director. He, on the Walton, he, he stayed pretty much to himself. He was always available. Um, he always planted a garden wherever he went. He was like Johnny Appleseed. He planted a garden the Waltons. And when we'd, we'd, we had done several theaters things together before the Waltons, and he always planted a garden wherever he went. There was a garden planted by Will Peter. The characters, feminine characters in the Waltons, women, were strong characters. Yourself, Ellen Corby, I remember an instance where uh, you were introduced as Michelle by an actor and you immediately corrected him. Was the Waltons meant to be a very subtle feminist presentation? I think basically, no, I don't think so, although it happened the same. It happened at the beginning of the whole women's liberation movement. But I don't think that's what Earl was consciously writing, but he was writing about very strong women, his mother being one of them. And uh, I, I remember once saying to him, didn't your mother ever do anything wrong? Because it seemed like Olivia was becoming a little bit too too perfect. And um, I just lost you. You're gone. Um, on the screen, I mean, my screen. Um, but anyway, um, and I said, didn't your mother ever do anything wrong? And he said, no, she never did. And I said, really? She never, she never spanked the wrong child or made a mistake. And, and he said, no, well, sometimes she wouldn't talk to us for a week or two. You know, and I thought, well, that could, that could be considered cruel, uh, when you're a child and your mom won't speak to you for a week. Um, so. Uh, I thought Olivia was, I, I fought him constantly because he's, he's so idealized his mother and the whole family. And we always had to kind of bring him down to earth and, and have, a, have somebody do something wrong or a little edgy. Was motherhood one of the more difficult roles you've played in your life? In my personal life? It was the joy of my life. Indeed. My kids and how marvelous! Really, truly, uh, my my. I remember once I was washing the dishes and I looked out the window and my youngest son was sitting there with his friend Hattie, Salem, and they were uh, they were on each side of this big dog that wasn't ours, surprisingly, because we had tons of animals, but um, it might have been Hattie's dog, and they each had their hand on on the dog's back, and they were just sitting there shooting the breeze, you know, talking. 
And I, I just felt such a rush of happiness just watching those kids sit there and talk to each other. And they brought me, they brought me great, great joy. We had so much fun. And of course, the teenage years were tough in the 70s. That was a trying time. But I've never regretted a moment of, of being with my children. It's, it's a marvelous exercise in the expression of love. I can relate to that. I'm certainly happy for you that you've experienced it. Yes, do I do. Kids? Three and five grandchildren. Yes, I do. Three I was eight. Me too, eight. exactly. You age more gracefully mm-hmm. than I. <laughs> oh, stop. It just seemed like five minutes ago I was 18. It's wonderful. I have five grandchildren and, and my three sons. Marvelous. Yeah. There is that statement by Ben Hancock where he talks about how time has gone by and he's remembering his childhood. Would you share a perception of the actor in question that John Horsley on television had a a humorous persona and here he was very vulnerable, very sensitive, very caring. And the scenes you have together are incredibly poignant. What might he have brought to that role as you saw it as a professional? You're talking about John Walmsley, correct? Um, Well, he's a musician, a wonderful musician. And um, I think all those kids, you know, they were all fine, just fine, all of them. Not one bad apple in the bunch. Um, Eric Scott has a wonderful sense of humor. John Walmsley is sensitive and he's a musician. He lives in Europe at the moment. He lives in Germany. And um, I'm from, I, I spent, I grew up in Austria for a while in my childhood. Uh, so we relate on that level. Uh, Cammie was, Cammie just was Cammie. Just as she was the character she played as Elizabeth. And Mary McDonough has become a very good close friend. And Richard Thomas is a good friend. So we, we, are, we are like a family, an extended family for me. I must ask, do you believe in second acts? Yes, I do. Uh, you know, I think you have to keep moving or you, you atrophy and die. Um, I feel that uh, I, I'm sad because I, I still go to a jazz class twice a week or three times a week if I can. And... Um, everything's canceled now you can't nothing's happening i suppose to do it try and do a jazz class with a mask on would Mm. be a little difficult um but it's 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 just a tough time i i find it quite depressing my husband's kind of blue and i'm a little blue and we're getting on each other's nerves and you know (laughs) i just want this to be over people are dying and it's this whole COVID thing is just, um, I never thought I would live through something like this. I, I keep thinking, couldn't it just have waited until a few more years, a couple more years, till I'm out of here. But um, along with it, some very, you know, it brings out the best in people. Wonderful things are also happening, so. In second acts, there are so many scenes where they're surrounded by people watching a play, walking down the street, sitting in a restaurant, holding hands. There's something projected in that that is missing. I, I know I must admit that I find it difficult. I feel like I'm living in a phone booth. It's not the easiest thing in the world. It's almost like fantasizing about how it was and how you hope it will be. It is a strange time. In the uh, short piece, Second Acts, did you find both joy and tragedy in the characters? 
the sad thing is that they couldn't have been together when they were in their prime. But the joy is, is that they reconnect and they can be together now because they don't care. You know, um, when you're children, you have no power. You know that. And uh, so she had no power as a child when her father pulled her away from the, the relationship, the friendship. And um, now as older people, they, they refind each other, they reconnect, and uh, they can be together in the face of whatever they have to face. And I, I don't think it's so bad anymore. Um, I'm sure there are people who would disapprove. There is racism still. Um, but, uh, but so what? Get over it and move on. Um, that's my feeling is I just won't tolerate it. Do you feel that especially uh, with Lee, it was an expression of parenting from the opposite side of the coin. She was not saying she no longer loved her father. She was saying she no longer accepted his lessons. Right. Absolutely. And probably never did really. But I mean, a lot of people, a lot of adults have had parents who had issues and they don't have the same issues. So Thankfully, um, I, I grew up in, in New England, you know, in Connecticut, and um, it, it was bad there. I remember as a kid, there was a little girl named Carol Coleman, and I, I've never forgotten her name. I couldn't tell you any of the other kids that were in our class, but I've never forgotten her name because she was African-American, and kids wouldn't. You know, we used to have to haul our little chairs up and put them in a reading circle, and they wouldn't sit next to her. And then I milked goats before I went to school, so I always smelled like goat cheese. So they didn't want to sit next to me, so she and I would sit <laughs> next to each other, and everybody else kept their distance. <laughs> there is such a close correlate between... <laughs> that is a nice memory. Smelling like goat cheese. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. <laughs> I did. I really did. There was a buck. When you have a buck in a barn with does, they give off an intense, intense odor. And um, anyway. I just, uh, I was listening to you. <laughs> Once I got, I got hit by a skunk on my way to school, and the <laughs> teacher made me, uh, I was in the second grade, and I had to, she took my snowsuit, which was, I, it was a one-piece suit, and I just loathed it because all my other friends had two-piece snowsuits. And um, she hung it out of the window, and I had to sit in the workroom in my underpants. It was the most mortifying time of my life. That was one of my early traumas. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just listening to you speak, and I do remember having an African-American friend, and we both became friends because when middle school students chose sides, they left the two worst basketball players for last and very often did not choose them. And he and I, he obviating the stereotype because he could not play at all. And I living up to the stereotype because I could not play at all, walked around the school <laughs> outside and just had a marvelous old time. Yeah. You know, when I, I was in Washington, D.C., when the schools were integrated for the first time, and that was an interesting experience because I was a lot older then, and uh, they brought in a very, very light-skinned teacher and a very light-skinned girl whose name, I, I can't remember her name, um, but I remember that um, I was the only one who talked to her. And we would sit together at lunch and the other kids would throw um, bread balls at us, you know, where they would squeeze the bread, wonder bread or whatever they, they had for their sandwiches and then toss it at us. But I, by the second year that she was there, it, it disappeared, it dissipated and went away. Um, so I, I don't know, I think there's hope. I think there's hope. I, I have to believe that. 
We have uh, one minute before the next station break. You've been intensely personal and very open, and I, I'm deeply appreciative that bespeaks to your confidence as a person, as an artist, as an individual. It makes for interesting conversation. Some of these can be so practiced, and this seems to be rather real. When we come back, uh, we'll pursue it a step further. Our guest has been Michael Learned. My name is Robert. The program is Seldom Said. This is Seldom Said with Robert Amato. The program is Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. My name is Robert. Special guest, Ms. Michael Learned, a Renaissance woman who exhibits all of those traits of a successful artist. This has been a marvelous program, and it has gone by so quickly. And the fact that we are in our final segment says something about the worth of the conversation. I've been involved in academia most of my adult life, and a question I've always put to people, no matter what their age, collegial and so forth, is whether they feel they can still play. Now, we call it a play, and we say the play's the thing, and we talk about our lives as children. Michael, when you're on stage in front of a camera or across the table from a fellow actor, can you still play as a child would, without restriction? That's interesting because as a young actor, I was very self-conscious and very frightened. I mean, I remember once we I was doing, um, I'm going to drop a name here, forgive me, but uh, Francis Coppola directed uh, Private Lives at ACT when I was there. This was before the Waltons. And um, it was an incredible experience to work with him because he really understands how actors work. And he wasn't in any way... Um, you know, thrown by style or anything. Uh, he just wanted truth. And of course, the more truthful you are, the funnier you are. And I loved working with him. And uh, But it, on opening night, I had this long cigarette holder and I had to light a cigarette. And the, the cigarette holder traveled from one side of my mouth all the way around in a big circle and ended up on the other side of my mouth because my hand was shaking so much and my teeth were chattering. And that was the kind of terror that I had when I was young. I, mm. Now I, I get very nervous on opening night or, you know, until I've sort of settled into the role. But, but it's, not like, it's, it's not like surgery on a baby. Ingrid Bergman once in an interview said that she had some practice moves that she always went to when she was nervous. Robert De Niro at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts said the same thing. Is there a danger in having affectations that one uses to cloak the honesty of a scene? Well, sometimes sometimes if you haven't solved um, the truth of a scene, and, and, and you know, I, I know sometimes i've I've never really resolved certain scenes in a play, especially a cl- classic. and you you have to kind of fall back on technique. Uh, and if you're lucky and you've had training, I'm grateful that I was trained in England, um, you do have that to fall back on uh, to get you through. And sometimes when you really walk off stage, one of the great things about working at ACT was that the the crew and the cast, we were all one big family. And some nights I would think, oh, my God, I was so there tonight. I was so in the scene. It was so real and just from my gut. And, oh, God, I it was transcendent. And I'll walk into the the bar afterwards and one of the crew guys will say what the hell were you doing you took forever the pauses went on and on and on and so we were we were very much put in our place 
but other times um, it does become transcendent and and uh, and the, the the play just flies by and you you feel like you really were present for every moment in a, in a artistic and wonderful way you mentioned english training there's a, a superb quotation that strikes my mind Dustin Hoffman and Marathon Man speaking to Laurence Olivier and saying he couldn't find his character. What should I do, he said. And Olivier responded by saying, simply act, young boy. By acting. Act. Yes. yes. Well, yeah. In yeah. And um, if you're trained well, you can do it because every moment is not going to be perfectly real and perfectly felt and perfectly... Um, especially if you're doing something night after night, but I've gotten more relaxed as uh, as the older I get, um, the more relaxed I am on stage. And consequently, new things can happen every night. And I don't feel locked into uh, a moment the way I would have felt when I was younger, where I, you know it had to be the same every night or I'd, I'd feel like I was cheating in some way. Now, Now I feel more... Uh, more open to um, what's happening around me. And it's, uh, I'm not the only thing on stage, you know, and that makes it easier. Have you ever felt that on a given evening, it was so good that you're concerned somewhat as to whether you can reach that pinnacle again, 24 hours later? I'm not sure I, I, I got the, can you repeat that again? Using perhaps as an analogy, an example, Pavarotti often said that he loved oh. singing certain arias, but he was always afraid of going back to them because it would never be as good. Right. Yes. Um, yes, there are some nights, you know, well, I mean, <laughs> Pavarotti, <laughs> Nobody can come close to what I can understand how someone can sing the way he sings and act as well. It's just mind boggling for me. I have such great respect for opera singers. Um, but yeah, acting too is the same way. You have a wonderful night where you just feel the audience was in your hands and you were all in it together and it was just perfect and then the second night it's not so good thursday nights are appalling usually we don't know why but thursday night and saturday night for some reason are tough nights in the theater mm. and um where the audience seems to be kind of removed and and that seems to be a pretty much of a given please stop me if you've heard the story but when you mention the singer and then acting in the same breath. Walter Houston was in a movie in which he sang September Song, a song that my father loved. Walter Houston could not sing, but he sang that song and my father wept. Do you feel that in acting, we can be whomever we choose and we can become as Houston did, a singer even though he did not have the talent to be so. Yes, I just, that's so interesting. I just read a poem in the New Yorker last night. I can't remember what, which issue it is, but I just came across this poem and I, I couldn't stop sobbing. It just spoke to me so deeply. Um, and yeah, I, I think it, we get to explore who we are. Uh, we have we have to bring something of ourselves to every character that we play. So when in that's what rehearsals for, and that's why I love the theater because you have a chance to rehearse and you have a chance to explore the text and what 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 does Chekhov mean when she says good morning? Does she mean good morning? I'm glad to see you, or does she mean good morning? I can't stand you, I wish I'd never met you, or does she mean good morning, I love you, or does she mean good morning, I hate you, and, and, and all of those things can apply, or one of those many things can apply, and 
In television, pretty much you say what you mean. There's very little subtext in television. Are you able to take off a very much loved role like an old coat when you walk out of the theater and simply be self again? I think I've always been pretty good at it. Um, some people can't. They, they live the role and they, you know, they are that person for the length of time they're in the show. I, I, uh, I had to drop it because I have kids at home, you know, and I at home, I'm just mom. And um, I used to watch the Waltons with my youngest son, Lucas. The two older boys were teenagers and they weren't interested at all. <laughs> Luke and I would watch it and I'd sort of be in the kitchen during the commercials, uh, fixing dinner. And um, I remember one son, I have told this story before, but he, he just yelled out, Mom, when I hear that music, it just makes me feel so happy. And, uh, <laughs> you know, that warmed my soul, yeah. I'm curious, when they were small, when they were young and impressionable, I'm reminded of a story told by Emily Blunt. She said she played Mary Poppins, and her daughter was somewhat taken back by the fact that she finally realized her mother couldn't fly. <laughs> Great story. <laughs> did, so your, <laughs> did your children understand what you did for a living? Yeah, they did because um, my son, the same son, wrote a lovely essay about waking up in the green room because um, we would take him to the theater sometimes if we couldn't, didn't have a babysitter and um, he'd fall asleep in the green room and he wrote this lovely essay about waking up and watching Kings and Queens playing cards at a card table, you know, all in costume and everything between, you know, between acts or between whenever they had to be on stage and how magical it was for him. So I think he always knew the difference between real life and play. You started to talk about playing, I think, in life a little while back. And yes. that intrigues me so because I, as an adult, I never knew how to play when I was young. Everything was very intense and uh, I could play with my kids, but that was about it. And um, um, I had to relearn how to, uh, how to play um, as an adult because I suddenly was got terribly responsible and, you know, felt the world was sort of on my shoulders. And, and then to have to learn how to play again was difficult. But I, I'm able to play now. I'm able to just laugh. I can be alone reading something and just have a big hearty laugh. And um, I play with the dog. And my husband's not too playful, but sometimes I can get them. Uh, you know, it's wonderful to be that free. And, and I do think it comes with age. It's like, what have I got to lose? I would agree with that. I can relate to the feeling. Sunsets become sunsets. Mm -hmm. It's a good feeling, isn't it? It indeed is. It's a very secure feeling. And sunsets the scene is... In second acts, that scene where they're both at table, there's the inference of moments they've missed and suddenly realize they're enjoying these moments. Is it possible to instill that in a child? To take the next breath and take pleasure in it? Yes, I do think so. My mother... My mother um, was an amazing woman. She, uh, she, um, she had issues, you know, as she got older. Um, one of them was having six girls, uh, <laughs> which I think kind of did her in. But, um, but I remember as a child, I remember my mother taking me around and showing me flowers and telling me the names of the flowers and telling me to take a real good look at the flowers. And 
things like feeling the dew under my feet. And she made me very aware of things like that, which I've tried to instill in my kids too, is, you know, feel that snowflake. See it, see how beautiful it is just for a second before it disappears. So I think mm-hmm. you can teach that. To ch- You can open their eyes. Um, I remember seeing um, a sculptor um, and I was living with them. Um, Peter and I were staying in an apartment where, which he had rented with his, uh, his former roommate, who was a guy. And uh, his mother was a sculptress. And we went to some show and there was this white thing that looked like a boomerang to me. And I thought, what the heck is that? I mean, what is that? It's not art. And it said it was a seagull. And she said, but Michael, just look at it. It's just taking flight. It's in movement. It is just Mm. taken off. And suddenly I saw it with completely new eyes, and it was beautiful. I would have missed it if she hadn't been there. What an incredible gift. Yeah. There's so much like that, just walking outside, a breath of fresh air. Mm -hmm. We, we live in a world that's 90 miles an hour. Do you find that it's difficult to bring an audience into a slower world? A world where there's an appreciation of moments? Well, if the moment is alive, um, I don't think it, it, I don't think it should be, I don't think there should ever be a slow moment on stage, frankly. Um, but I think if the moment is filled, it won't seem slow, is what I mean. If it seems slow, then that's because I'm bored, for me anyway, as an audience. Mm. Um, so one would hope that those moments would be so filled with juice that um, it wouldn't seem slow to an audience. Have you ever, in mid-part, embellished dialogue, thoughts came to you, that you wish the playwright had felt? Oh, no. <laughs> I never have, not ever. I mean, sometimes if I go up in my lines or something, I'll scrabble a few terrible words of my own just until I get back on track. But uh, no, and I've had the privilege of working with Edward Albee and Arthur Miller and, um, you know, Jack O'Brien. And w- wonderful, wonderful. Well, Jack O'Brien and Neil... Um, Neil Simon, uh, these wonderful playwrights, and uh, Shakespeare, of course. Uh, you don't want to ad lib because it's all there. And the only time I ever ad lib is if I've gone up in my lines and I need to sort of try to scrabble my way back into the play. Michael, we're going into the end of our program. Uh, Madam, you're a special pleasure. I appreciated you coming back on again. Thank you. You make it so easy, really. It's just like talking to a friend. One more friend to know. The program has been seldom said. My special guest, Michael Learned. Be with us again next time. Mm-hmm.